Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, we thank You for being here this day that we can gather together in the name of Christ and know that You, O Father, are present with us. That You have bound us up together with one another and are fulfilling Your promises in our midst. Grant to us faith, O Lord. Grant to us hearts that trust. And grant to us faithfulness that we would walk throughout our days in light of your promises that we would continually strive and respond to them that we would yearn to be changed over and over more and more knowing your redemption to its fullness even here in these days on this earth help us O lord to know you and that in knowing you, we might know ourselves more fully. And we ask this all through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What did you go out to see today? A reed shaken by the wind, Jesus says in his passage today from the Gospels. A reed shaken by the wind. That is, a water reed that is hollow on the inside that has no real ability to stand firm. But with every little wave, with every gust of wind, it bows to it and flops back and forth and just goes with the changes that come. Jesus reminds us that that is not who John the Baptist was. And as John's disciples are coming to him asking a question of who Jesus is, he reminds the crowds for us and reminds us of the fullness of who John is. But that is not all that this passage is about this day. It goes on to speak of violence. It goes on to speak of the violent taking heaven by force. Of the prophets and the law prophesying until John. It goes on to speak of people rejecting both John and Jesus because they did not fulfill certain expectations for them. And so we are left wondering what binds all of these thoughts together, this time of coming together, this time of teaching from Jesus. His mentioning of the law and the prophets causes me to realize something. That the word of law and the prophets, the word of command and promise, that those very things should be what drive us to the gates of the kingdom. They should drive us to clamor to the gates of, of the kingdom so that we would know more fully the work of Christ for us. That that is what these people are lacking who have rejected John and who have rejected Jesus. They don't hear that word of law. They don't hear the word of promise. They ignore the commands. They ignore the grace that God is pouring out upon this world through His servant Jesus, through His Messiah. And so they do not go and clamor. They do not rush forward to those gates of the kingdom to receive the grace that is given on the other side of them. It's because they have doubt instead of faith. They do not trust, for trusting would mean rejecting themselves. 
To trust in someone outside of yourself is to reject yourself as being the center, to reject who and what you are in favor of someone who is utterly unique, in favor of someone who is greater than you. That is what happens when you hear the word of law, when you hear the word of the prophets, when you hear the word of command and promise given to you is that you are confronted with the reality that you must walk away from who you are in yourself and turn to Christ and through that turning be changed, through that repentance, for that is what repentance simply is, is a turning from yourself, a turning from your old ways, a recognition, a turning around of your mind and heart toward the one true God. And that is what we begin with. We begin with hearing about repentance because we're talking about John. But even more so, we hear about doubt and faith. We hear about how there are some coming to Jesus asking who he is. And it creates this question in our minds of who is doubting and who has faith in this passage. You see, John is in prison in verse 2, it says. When John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Who is the doubting one here? Some read it as being John the Baptist himself, that John himself is doubting the Messiahship of Jesus. That he is despondent, that he is in despair, being locked in prison. That he's languishing there for his audacious stand against Herod's wicked sin. And so some commentators in the modern day, they impose this idea of extreme doubt on John that because he is suffering, Jesus must not be the Messiah. Jesus may not be the Messiah. Because after all, the Messiah is the one who will free the prisoners. And yet here is John languishing in prison. Where is Jesus the Messiah in all of that for John? But as I've studied this text, and I think in the past I have looked at it from that perspective of it's John who is doubting here. But the more I've read this text, the more I've looked at commentaries, the more I've looked at what the church fathers had to say about it, more and more I'm convinced that it's not so much John that is doubting, but it's his disciples who refuse to turn away from John. It's his disciples who are clinging to John the Baptist instead of going to Jesus. Think about the controversies that have occurred in Scripture When Jesus went to be baptized, John cried out, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew who Jesus was. He saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus, and so he knew that Jesus was the one through whom the Holy Spirit was going to come upon God's people. That he was the one who was the forerunner to receive that very Spirit. And then through him, the Spirit would be poured out upon all flesh. John spoke of the one that was to come who would baptize with fire and that very spirit. John is the one who went out into the desert, who wore sackcloth, who ate locusts and honey, who lived a very ascetic kind of life, who lived a deprived life. He knew what he was getting into when he began proclaiming repentance. He knew what he was getting into when he proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. So thus we must repent. Thus we must be
be baptized into a baptism of repentance for the people of that day. John was confident. John understood who Jesus was. And he told his disciples, go and follow Jesus. Go and follow the Messiah. Don't keep following me. I must decrease, but Jesus the Messiah must increase, he says in John 3. But nonetheless, his disciples kept having conflicts. Just earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, these very disciples are complaining that Jesus and his disciples don't fast regularly, that they are not acting like John did, that Jesus seems to be enjoying life instead of being despondent, instead of turning away from the good things God had given in light of sin, in light of struggle, and that he allows his disciples to feast alongside him. And John's disciples are scandalized by this reality. But Jesus reminds them that why would they fast? The bridegroom is in their very presence. So therefore, we feast and we rejoice together. But when the bridegroom goes away, then they will fast. Then they will go about the work that they are called to do. And so John's disciples had problems with Jesus being the Messiah. And so I think that this is an issue of John sending his own disciples in their doubt to go speak with Jesus, to ask him, are you really the one or should we look for another? And so John, Jesus tells him, in light of their doubt, go and tell John what you see and hear. For John is the one who has been explaining who the Messiah is. Go and tell him that you have seen the blind receiving their sight, that the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. We get to hear about the work of the Messiah. And here, Jesus' words aren't just from one passage in the book of Isaiah. As you could hear in our reading today from Isaiah 35, we heard some of those very people mentioned as being the recipients of the grace of God, of the Messiah coming into renewal of all things in them, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame walking and leaping, the mute speaking. But in other places, Throughout Isaiah, we hear of these same people, but we hear of some of the others that Jesus, is, that Jesus mentions. In Isaiah 53, we hear of the Messiah cleansing the lepers. In Isaiah 26, we hear of the dead being raised up. And then Jesus' words of the poor having good news preached to them is directly echoing Isaiah 61, the very first verse of the work of the Messiah after receiving the Spirit. That Jesus is fulfilling all the messianic prophecies, all the messianic words surrounding the servant of God throughout the book of Isaiah. And he's telling these disciples, here's what I am doing. Don't you remember what the Messiah is said to be doing in the book of Isaiah, what Isaiah prophesied about him? Now go and talk to John about that reality of how is it that I am performing these very things that the Messiah is supposed to do, who is the one Isaiah told us about. And so he sends them on their way, reminding them, and blessed is he who is not offended by me. The one who can receive Jesus, who can turn away from doubt and enter into faith in Jesus is the one who will be blessed. For that one is not offended by Jesus. And even more so in this context, what assures me that it's the, the disciples of John who are doubting, the disciples who are refusing to turn away from John into Jesus is, what does Jesus then go on to say about John? He goes on to recount John's faith, his unshakable faith. 
by asking the crowds, what did, John, what did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? That reed that just flops back and forth depending on the weather? Who can't stand firm before the storms of life? Did you go out to see someone in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothes are in king's houses, he says. That John is a sure foundation. John is the austere one who comes before the Messiah. What then did you go out to see, he asked in verse 9, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. John is that messenger who goes before the face of the Lord, who prepares the way for the Messiah, who is Yahweh in the flesh. John prepares that path by going out to preach repentance, by preaching a turning of mind and heart away from self and toward the Lord. And so John is a prophet, yes, but he's greater than a prophet, for he is the one who sees the fulfillment of all things in Christ. He sees the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament pointing to the Messiah that is to come. He witnesses it, and he is the one who proclaims that reality of the Messiah is here now. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist for that very reason. He sees the Messiah finally step foot onto the earth. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And at the end of all of this doubt and this faith, this doubt of John's disciples and their need to turn to faith in Christ and the faith that John has, he becomes the greatest of all men born of women because he again sees that coming of the Lord. He proclaims that coming of the Lord. And yet we who come so long after John, who are least in the kingdom are greater than he, for we are the benefactors of his work after the fact. Yes, Jesus' work on the cross reverberates both forward and backwards in time. But we get to look back upon that work, seeing it completed in history, seeing it accomplished in history, and thus, in that very way, we, in some sense, become greater than John the Baptist, even if we are the least in the kingdom of heaven, for we are embracing the complete work of Christ instead of looking forward to it occurring. We embrace the completeness of it and the here and the now and walk in it from then on which then leads us to one of Jesus' hard sayings, that as we consider that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than even John the Baptist, the greatest of all the prophets of the Old Testament time, that we hear Jesus speak of from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffering violence. And so we have to consider after this doubt and the faith, the doubt of disciples and the faith of John, that we must consider now the violence and the faith that exists in the kingdom. In verse 12, Jesus says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. This is considered one of the hard sayings of Jesus. And I understand why. This translation is tricky. These words are tricky in the original language. And there's two major ways of understanding it. One is that, the violence being done to the kingdom is the world pushing back against the kingdom and them trying to break it down and tear it down. That the violence that is being inflicted upon the kingdom is that of the world against it. But there's another way of understanding it. And again, this goes back to the church fathers 
and their understanding of the kingdom and their understanding of the way that Jesus was talking here. That the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence in relation to those who hear the good news are clamoring forward. They're rushing forward to take the kingdom of heaven by force, to enter into the kingdom of heaven because they've been told if you repent, you will be received and they are turning from their sins and clamoring and charging forward against the gates of heaven to be received by the one who is calling out to them. And in that way, the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence for they are, in a way, the violent ones when you think about it from earthly ways of thinking. It's those who the world rejects, those who the Jewish leaders have rejected, all the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the Roman soldiers, the Gentiles themselves. They appear to be violent to those who are upright according to their own ways. The riffraff are coming into the kingdom of heaven. And that riffraff is trying to take it by force, by forcing themselves into it through their repentance. Another way to translate these words from the Greek might help make this more clear. The kingdom of heaven is pressing forward forcefully and eager men are seizing it. It's very different from how the ESV translate it, translates it. Very different from many of our English translations that we have. But part of the difficulty is the verb that occurs there for violence, for pressing forward, the suffering of violence is used twice in all of the New Testament, here and in Luke's gospel, when Jesus says a very similar thing there, where he speaks of the kingdom of heaven is proclaimed and everyone is forcing their way into it. Everyone is causing violence toward it. There is very much so that Jesus is using that in a positive sense, and so it's translated as the forcing their way in, that they hear the proclamation of the kingdom, and they turn and they run to that kingdom. They force their way in. And I like that picture of the kingdom of heaven forcing its way into this world. That is pressing forward forcefully. For that is exactly what Jesus is doing in his ministry. Think of it. All those people who have been bound up by blindness, by lameness. That are unclean lepers that can't hear, that have died, that the poor. They are all victims of the cosmic sin in this world, of the devil himself and his minions, of the powers and the principalities, they exacerbate that original sin that exists in each and every one of us. They amplify it and they drag us down. And yet here is Jesus coming in, bringing the kingdom and pushing back against that by bringing healing, by bringing restoration, by bringing redemption into this world in a way that it has never experienced before. And thus the kingdom of heaven in that sense is pushing itself forward against this world. And in that way it suffers violence as these people clamor into it, as these people seize it, as these people run forward, press forward into those gates and shake those gates crying out, let me in for I am turning from what I am to what you have called me to do. And what is it that they have been called to do? They have been called into repentance like us this day. That was John's message and that was Jesus' message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is coming, John and Jesus have told us. And the way into that kingdom is the path of repentance. 
Jesus goes on to say, For all the law and the prophets prophesied until John. They all prophesied. They all spoke about what we were to do and what God was going to do. The two words of the Bible, law and promise. Law and gospel. Of God coming and claiming us as His own. Of Him becoming our God and us becoming His people. And the way that we know that reality is through the repentance that must come. For when we hear the law, the law condemns. The law puts us down. The command tells us what we are to do. And in telling us what to do reveals to us how we have failed in doing that. But then we hear that word of gospel and of promise. That forgiveness has been accomplished in this one man, the Messiah, Jesus. And so turn from those sins. Turn from that breaking of the law. And turn to Christ in forgiveness and be renewed and be transformed. Acknowledge your sin and see it as the affront to God that it is. Recognize that you and I have failed to keep the very law that God has given us. That we haven't kept a jot or tittle of it. Our minds, our hearts, our affections, our desires are all broken. And they are all called to repentance. They are called to turn from their inwardness to the Look outward to stop seeing self as central and to see God as central. To see that Christ is the very one that we need. And we can do that. We can turn now because of what God has done. We're enabled to do that because God made this change possible by His Son. Who is the fullness of the gospel in human flesh because He is the Son of God incarnate. God in human flesh. In fact, Jesus himself is God in perfect relation to God, for he is that second person of the Trinity in perfect relation to the Father. And in that, he takes on flesh in order to bring that perfection into our world once more by being perfectly united to the Father and his Godhood and thus bringing his humanity into that very perfect relationship. He extends that relation and that union to us through faith, through uniting to us through being united to us through baptism, by pouring His Spirit upon us to bring us to Himself. Jesus is that perfect union of the Father, with that perfect union with the Father for our sake, so that we can then receive that promise of God being our God and us being His people. But how does this world react to all of that? Jesus sums that up with selfishness and faith. That is how the world responds to these violent ones, these riffraff storming the gates of heaven. This generation is like children who in the marketplaces call to their playmates, we played the flute, but you didn't want to dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't want to mourn. They act in childish ways saying, we did this, but it didn't match what you wanted. This isn't what we want. We want something else. These People in the marketplace are like children clamoring back and forth, complaining about the works of God. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon. He came doing what he was called to do, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders say, oh, he has a demon, but then Jesus comes in a different way. And they say, oh, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That is how the world responds to the work of John and Jesus. One has a demon and the other is a glutton. 
They don't live up to the world's expectations at the end of the day. And the world rejects them. But Jesus says wisdom is justified by her deeds. That despite the world's selfishness, we turn in faith. We become like violent ones. We become the riffraff who storm the gates of heaven, who go up to the gates and we try to seize heaven by force, by forcing our repentance before us. The generation there with Jesus can't see the reality that is before their very eyes. John in austerity crying out for repentance. They can't see the reality of God working there. But then Jesus in His feasting and yet crying out for repentance can't see the reality of the Messiah there before them bringing the good things of heaven down to earth. But then for those who receive that work, those tax collectors, those sinners, those prostitutes, those Roman soldiers, those downtrodden, the poor, the blind, the lame, all of them began receiving the work of Christ and began turning from their sins. They began repenting and in a repentance stormed the gates of heaven. They take heaven. St. Augustine said, what is wrong with us? What is this? What did you hear? The unlearned start up and they take heaven. And we with our learning but wanting heart wallow in flesh and blood. Because others have preceded us, are we ashamed to follow and not rather ashamed at not following? St. Augustine saw there that the unlearned were taking heaven before them. They were clinging to the reality of repentance and faith. But he and his friends weren't. They were offended. Seeing the unlearned going into heaven before them, are we ashamed to follow them? And St. Augustine rightly recognizing their sin are not rather ashamed at not following, that they have a sense of shame at following the unlearned, but really their shame should be at the fact that they're unwilling to follow those who get it, those who have received the work of God. And again, from Dante, a beautiful verse here. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence from ardent love and living hope. For these can be the conquerors of heaven's will. Yet not as man defeats another man. The will of God is won because it would be won. And won wins through benevolence. The kingdom of heaven wants us to storm its gates. The Father in heaven wants us to come clamoring into his kingdom, shaking at those gates, crying out in repentance, crying out in faith. To be conquerors of heaven's will, as Dante said, because that's what heaven's will wants. It wants us to come and conquer. And in the conquering, we discover the benevolence and the love and the compassion of God. And so this day, let us storm the gates of heaven. Let us storm it with repentance. And thus take our place there. Take our place there in heaven at the throne of God. Not with conceit. Not because we think we deserve it. Which would actually undo all of our repentance. But storm those gates with repentance and humility. Knowing that that storming is the very thing that is expected. That all who storm in will be welcomed. They are storming in by repentance. We storm in because of that grace that has been given. 
because of the mercy and the compassion and the kindness which changes us and it opens our eyes to the need that we didn't even know we had. So this day, cast away your sins. This day, don't let your sins become an excuse to keep you from approaching God, from approaching Christ, for He has accomplished what we need. And through His accomplishment, we can then storm the very gates of heaven itself through repentance, through faith, and come with confidence into the very throne room of God Himself, where we will meet the Father and see the Son face to face. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.